You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 68, The Third Republic, Part 8, The French Army. We started this series of episodes with a lengthy discussion on the Maginot Line. The entire thesis of that episode was that it can be dangerous to judge decisions based on their outcomes, or in the case of the Maginot Line, judge a series of fortifications based on whether or not the nations who built those fortifications won the war they were designed to participate in. Over the last six episodes, we've taken a fantastic voyage through French politics during the 1930s, the goal of which was to provide background for why certain decisions were made around rearmament and reactions to other events in Europe, and, as we will discuss today, around how the French military planned to fight a future war. This is a topic where it can once again be very easy to start at the end and work backwards, hunting for reasons for the failure. In the summer of 1940, the French military would, almost in its entirety, fail at, pre- at its primary task of preventing a German invasion of France. There were several key trends in the French military in the decade before 1939 that would lead to this outcome. Two of the most important were a distinct feeling of inferiority and a complete incorrect read on what the future of war would look like. The constant feeling of inferiority when compared with Germany, especially after rearmament efforts began, would push the French military in an incredibly defensive stance. This would feed into their complete misinterpretation of what war would be like in the years and decades that followed, which left the French military theory of 1940 feeling archaic. The second of these trends is far more interesting and complicated to really dig into because it requires some discussion of why such mistakes were made, and then some estimation about the quality of French preparations for the war they believed they were going to fight, even if it was not the correct type of war. To close out this introduction, I have to make sure to mention the really keystone source for this episode, The Seeds of Disaster, The Development of French Army Doctrine 1919-1939 by Robert Allen Dowdy. Longtime listeners of History of the Great War might remember my constant praise of Dowdy for what is probably the best book focused on French efforts in the First World War, Pyrrhic Victory, French Strategy and Operations in the Great War. Dowdy continues his discussion of the French military in Seeds of Disaster, and I really cannot recommend it enough. We will start off with a quote from Seeds of Disaster that kind of frames everything we're going to talk about. Quote, Governments construct their military system based on an analysis of the requirements of their political system, 
the demands of their country's unique geographical settings, and the memories of their nation's historic experience with war and with the use of military force. End quote. To try and understand why the French army made the decisions that it would make in the 10 years before 1940, we have to talk about what they thought would be the dominant factor on future battlefields. To put it simply, they believed that firepower would dominate. The ability of armies to marshal and direct firepower meant that any battlefield would be an incredibly lethal place for any man or machine that was unfortunate enough to find itself on it. Critically, they also believed that firepower would overwhelm any other changes made within the military sphere, particularly changes made to mobility due to motorization and mechanization. This was a conclusion drawn from the French experiences during the First World War, and was also in some ways a reaction to some pre-war French thoughts. Looking back from after the First World War, it seemed clear that French military leaders before the conflict had underestimated the power of firepower. This had resulted in the French army creating an offensive framework that was overly optimistic about what a soldier could accomplish. After the First World War, they would attempt to not make the same mistake again, because of course they did. Unfortunately for the French, trying to avoid that mistake would cause them to stumble into another one. The First World War had been a period of rapid military, technological, and theoretical evolution. In 1914, men were advancing across northern France in close order against artillery that would at times be firing over open sights. By 1916, this would shift into massive battles of annihilation, where both sides would collect more artillery than either side could have dreamed of before the war began. This increase in artillery power would continue in 1917, but then something else would start to occur. During 1918, artillery, while still very, very important, began to be overshadowed by what occurred after the bombardment, particularly when looking at how the various armies managed to start mounting reasonably successful offensives. There were still serious challenges involved, the largest being mobility of attacking units, and they really needed to be able to move forward at faster than foot speed to to really make huge changes. But the German offensives of spring 1918 and then the Allied offensives of the Hundred Days began to show that the future of warfare might be more dynamic than what 1915-1917 had shown. This would be one of the driving forces behind the focus in other nations on armored theory during the interwar period. Both the British and Germans would put a lot of time and focus on armored doctrine in the years that followed, and over the course of the interwar years, they would be greeted by constant, if at times slow, technological developments. The French were not ignorant of these technological developments. They just believed that they did not override the experiences of the last war. Artillery was still seen as the key to the battlefield, and the key was to make sure that it was in the right place at the right time. This meant that as militaries began to motorize and mechanize, the French met that with an effort to motorize the artillery. They understood that other nations were mechanizing and that the pace and positioning in battle would have to accelerate. They just really underestimated how much additional speed would be present. One of the major problems that was not addressed was the lack of innovation within the French artillery. They were still incredibly reliant on the old reliable 75mm field gun, which was showing its age in terms of size and power. More importantly though, changes had not been made to artillery doctrine that would allow it to really function on a much more fluid battlefield. Simple things like fire support requests did not have a quick path from the officers at the front to the artillery batteries, and instead it would have to wander a bit up the chain of command. 
This was not seen as a critical area of concern because the French belief in, in just how influential firepower would be caused them to make some incorrect assumptions about what war would look like in general. They felt that it would force the entire war into a defensive slugfest, not that dissimilar to the First World War. The general belief was that after some initial chaos, which the French would mitigate with preparations like the Maginot Line, things would settle down and the French could move to their preferred methodical battles. These battles would only be launched once everything was prepared and they would involve the full use of firepower to slowly push the attack forward in well-prepared steps. Each step would involve strict timetables and perfectly coordinated infantry advances. This view of what a war would look like was both informed by the realities faced by the French military, but then also informed some other decisions that they would have to make. We will talk about some examples in each of these categories. But first, any military doctrine is only as good as its matchup against what everybody else was doing. And that was the first real weakness of the French plans. The Germans would do everything in their power during the 1930s to avoid the exact type of war that the French were planning to fight. In Germany, this push would influence many different areas of their military planning and preparation. For example, tank designs would prioritize speed and mobility. It also forced discussions about where and who should be making decisions, because with mobility came challenges of command and control. This was less pressing for the French, who were more comfortable with more decision-making happening at higher levels of command, because they believed that centralized control was a huge benefit, even if it slowed decision-making at the tip of the spear. That the French misjudged what the future held is not necessarily their worst problem during these years. Everybody made mistakes. It can be very tempting to underestimate the uncertainty present in any future predictions on the nature of warfare in an environment with rapidly advancing technology. Now, the biggest problem was the lack of ability to adapt. The official statements of the French doctrine in the form of army manuals would see two major revisions during the interwar years. The first revision would be written in 1921, with Patan and 12 other officers drafting the instructions, which indexed incredibly heavily on events of the First World War, like, as you would expect. That document would remain in force all the way until 1936, at which point a revision would be undertaken to account for technological changes of the last 15 years. There would be some changes in details, but no real restructuring of the instruction manuals from 1921. Information was added about mechanized and motorized divisions, but the core remained the same, the focus on firepower and its ability to dominate. The most effective militaries during the interwar years were those that made meaningful changes to how they planned to fight a war in the decade before 1939. The French simply did not do this. Instead of taking the technological changes that had been made after 1918 and crafting doctrine around them, they instead just incorporated those changes into pre-existing assumptions about what a war would look like. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Back in episode 61, we discussed some of the challenges that influenced French military preparations during the 1920s, and particularly those that led to a focus on defensive efforts, which culminated in the Maginot fortifications. These same challenges would also influence overall military planning as well. One of the political decisions that had to be considered by army leadership was the introduction of a one-year service policy for all men of military age. In the decade after the First World War, all men eligible for military service served two years of active service before moving through various levels of reserve. When this was reduced to a single year in 1927, where it would remain until 1935, there were two important impacts. The first was the most obvious. The soldiers had less training during their period of active service. Most of their year would be spent only on the most basic of military training, and they were only really useful as soldiers in the last half of their enlistment period. The second, and equally important, was that it meant that the standing army in France was very small. There simply were not as many soldiers in the army at any given time, which made certain essential functions difficult. A great example of this was getting experience for officers that commanded units at divisional level or above. They were only really able to command real units of troops during fall maneuvers, but these were often far below the strength and size that they would be expected to command after mobilization. For example, a wartime corps commander might only have ever commanded one, maybe two divisions on maneuvers. Another challenge was that when mobilization was ordered, outside of the eastern districts, which would be called upon to to run to the Maginot defenses in the hours after mobilization, there would be quite a bit of sort of resource shifting. The plan was to kind of move pieces around because they wanted to optimize for long-term planning and strength instead of short-term cohesion. So there was a lot of mixing of troops and officers. Eventually, the one-year service law was reverted in 1935 and it was removed back to two years, but the results were less than what you might assume. This was because of the small wartime generations that were at that point aging into military service starting in 1935, which meant that the doubling of service time was almost entirely counteracted by the reduction in the sheer number of men available. This reduction had been foreseen since 1918, and is one of the reasons for such a massive push for defensive preparations. Without the defenses, it was probably going to be beyond the capability of the French military to defend the French borders during these years. The outcome of all of this was that when a war happened, the French required a lengthy period between mobilization and real combat 
to refresh training for everyone and to bring all of these this massive number of reserves into the army and get them ready. And the hope was that the fixed defenses could provide that time. The lack of faith in the training of the French military also put limits on what the French army could do on a tactical and strategic level. In such a scenario, a more methodical, well-planned, and very by-the-book kind of offensive operation was seen as the most likely to be successful. It did not depend on experienced officers or experienced units who were capable of making decisions on the run or of interpreting an ever-changing battlefield. They simply had to follow the very specific instructions to move to you know, point A on the map at, at time Y. This inflexible structure and the belief that it was necessary was also something that was reflected at the very highest levels of the French military leadership. The stability present at the very top of this leadership and the Minister of War and the Chief of the General Staff was impressive. From January 3rd, 1930 until 1940, there would be precisely two Chiefs of the General Staff, General Weygand and General Gamlin. On the side of the Minister of War, there would be more men who, led the off- who held the office, but the time after 1932 was dominated by Daladay, who would hold the position for over five years. This level of stability in the leadership positions can be a very good thing, but it also caused a level of stability that, that was perhaps counterproductive. During the 1930s, change was essential as so much was changing, not just in technology and military theory, but also on the European political landscape. There would be attempts to fix some of these problems. For example, General Weygand would create a body to advise in the armament and technological advancements sort of sphere. This would be called the technical cabinet. And they would be put in charge of collecting information about what was possible and then designing and and testing new weapons. Unfortunately, they were not given the power to drive those designs, and found themselves instead just constrained to putting together designs for equipment that was requested by the French army with some pretty exact specifications, which didn't really give them much of an ability to to alter or, or push things forward. Now, it's generally impossible to discuss military evolution during the interwar years without at least mentioning French thoughts on tanks and mechanized warfare. The French were not without their own specific set of opinions on the role of tanks in combat. First up, to be clear, the French thought that the tank would be a very important weapon after the First World War. They knew that the tank and its future developments would play a role, and the French army had to learn to utilize it as a new tool. They would make some different choices on how this new tool should be utilized, and they would come down on the distributed side of sort of the distributed versus concentrated debate that would be happening. This was a major topic of conversation in many nations during the 1920s and 30s, and the French would, for many years, focus on how the tank could be used in a distributed infantry support role. The focus on methodical battles basically mandated that the tank be used in this way. Independent armor action was not really a part of their overall theory for these methodical battles. Or to quote the 1929 regulations under the heading Instructions on the Employment of Combat Tanks, quote, Tanks are only supplementary means of action placed temporarily at the disposition of the infantry. They considerably reinforce the action of the infantry, but they do not replace them. End quote. This is a good framing for what the French were searching for in terms of tanks and their usage, which then influenced the design of tanks moving forward. The French generally preferred more heavily armored tanks, uh, which traded mobility for more protection from the growing power of anti-tank guns. 
The FT-17 tank from the last years of the First World War would continue to be a major part of the French tank arsenal until 1930, but as the 1930s progressed, the French would start to design new tanks that took that basic concept of a tank that had the ability to survive on the battlefield. Not all of their designs were great, but they did have some pretty forward-looking, at least, ideas. For example, in 1932, there was a report that advocated for trying to mount the 75mm artillery gun in a tank turret. This at a time when almost all tanks being produced were armed with at most very small cannons, but mostly just machine guns. This basic premise of a large artillery gun mounted on a tank chassis was basically the foundation of tank destroyers, and the mix of large guns with a lot of armor would be the path that tank design would take in the last half of the 1930s and into the 1940s. But these discussions were happening for very different reasons in 1930s France compared to those same conversations a decade later. The French wanted to mount a large cannon on the tank, not to engage other tanks, but to allow it to better support an infantry attack with point-blank support fire. While the evolution of armor theory in France was not the same as what would occur in Germany or elsewhere, it did change and progress. For example, in 1936, French tanks would be concentrated in larger and larger groups to allow them to be used as a more proactive tool in French attacks. But any movements in that direction would always be made within the framework of how it related to the artillery, which was still seen as the primary tool of the army. This meant that the role and plan for armored units was, at least until 1939, structured around the limitations present in the artillery arm. There would be efforts to motorize artillery units to allow them to keep up and support the tank advance, but the leash kept on tank units was always based on artillery capabilities. Even as larger tank unit concentration was being contemplated, there was still the requirement that any action also be in coordination and support of the infantry. For armored forces, this generally manifested as large numbers of tanks being parceled out to infantry units as support vehicles. This reduced the overall strength of those armored units that were created so that infantry would have vehicles that would help them make more successful attacks on enemy positions. In fact, the first French armor division would not be created until January 1940. One of the problems was just how expensive building up armored divisions really was. It was only when rearmament in earnest began after 1936 that building up the number of tanks required for large armored units became really possible. And beyond the simple cost of building them, properly using armored units required better trained troops and more specialty personnel, which were further drains on personnel budgets and the limited French active duty manpool. Even after the first armored division was created, they were still seen as just very large infantry support units, and their intended purpose was still wrapped around infantry operations. There were, however, units in the French army that were planning to fulfill a more independent set of operations, and that was the cavalry units. The French cavalry had underwent a large mechanization process in the years before the war. They were equipped with light tanks, armored cars, and motorized their infantry. With these tools, they were supposed to fulfill a very traditional role for cavalry, operating outside of the methodical battle to scout the enemy and exploit any weaknesses that they found. By the time that they were started, these units were also to be used as breakthrough and exploitation units, which was very similar to how other armies were planning to use their armored divisions. But as with the armor and gun discussions happening in France, this was once again the French arriving at a similar place for different reasons. The cavalry divisions were not seen as the primary tools of the army. They were seen as supplementary, 
to what would be the decisive infantry and artillery attack. So to summarize, the French made mistakes in how they were planning to fight a war. There was a general lack of understanding in in how some of the technological advances of the 1930s fundamentally changed the nature of warfare. But maybe more importantly, they were unable to fully recognize how their plans would interact with others, particularly those being made by the Germans. What I've been surprised about when thinking about some of these mistakes is how similar they were to the mistakes made by the French army in the decade before the First World War. Now, I I discussed that evolution in patron episode 41 and 42 uh, on History of the Great War, which I released for free, so you can go check out those episodes. But in essence, the French had an incredibly offensive-based plan that had originated in the last decades of the 1800s, and they stuck with that plan even as technological advancements were made. As machine guns, fast-firing artillery, and other advancements were made, instead of causing a re-evaluation of the French offensive plans, it was instead just folded in under the justification that it helped the attacker as much as the defender. After the First World War, even though they were attempting to avoid that same mistake again, by the 1930s, they were just making that same mistake in the opposite direction. The focus on defensive preparations and a methodical offensive mindset was totally solidified during the 1920s. During that decade, it probably was the correct mindset and the correct plan. A war that might have occurred during the 1920s probably would have looked totally different than the Second World War. However, during the 1930s, and as advancements occurred that should have fundamentally shifted their mindset, it didn't really. The advancements in armor and aircraft and motorization capabilities of both other armies and the French army itself were not properly accounted for. Instead of a more fundamental reevaluation of previously made conclusions based on the circumstances of the 1920s, the French just folded those advancements into their pre-existing theories. The tank, instead of being looked at as a tool to bring mobility to the battlefield, would just amplify the ability of the infantry to attack prepared positions. Motorization, instead of being used proactively to position infantry units, was instead seen as a way to quickly seal breaches made in the French defenses. The trickiest part is that none of these conclusions were necessarily incorrect. In both of those examples, those advancements did help the French plan. However, by just shoving them into the pre-existing plan, the French underestimated their effect on the overall course of a battle and the war. Even with these problems, though, they may have been successful if other nations had made different choices about how to fight a war. Every army goes to war with different plans, but the key difference between France and Germany in 1940 was not just how they planned to use the various pieces of their army, but also how they planned to force the enemy to fight. The French army, with its defensive and methodical mindset, completely lacked the ability to force that structure of the war that they wanted to fight on the enemy. They could not force the Germans to fight the war in a specific way, and when they were met with something that they did not expect, they were unable to adapt and adjust quickly enough. But to find the roots of that failure and that inability to adapt and adjust, you can't start in the late 1930s. You have to go all the way back to the First World War. Because during the 1920s, just to reiterate, the French were making good decisions. Their fault was that not that they never made good decisions, as that they didn't realize when their previously made decisions, which were good, became invalidated by advancements that were being made around them. And that inability to understand when change was needed 
would be the source of their downfall. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next episode as we begin our series on the Munich Crisis. Maybe the most important event before the war? It certainly would have to be in the top three.